Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. Coming up shortly, we've got a great guest, my friend Buck Sexton. And if you don't know Buck, where the hell have you been? He's the co-host of the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton show, the replacement for Rush Limbaugh, nationally syndicated everywhere. Can't wait to have that conversation. But before then... Let's talk a little bit about a long New Yorker essay from the New Yorker. I don't necessarily recommend you click the link. It's not really worth your time, to be honest with you. It's kind of why I'll summarize it for you right now and tell you what you should think about it. Title this essay, it's by the Supreme Court. It's entitled, quote, Amy Coney Barrett's Long Game. For those of you who are vaguely familiar with the New Yorker, who are vaguely familiar with the Upper West Side New York Times reading, liberal progressive readership that publication has, if you are vaguely familiar, of course, with who Amy Coney Barrett is and kind of the smear campaign that was kind of, uh, that was aired against her when she was nominated to be Ruth Bader Ginsburg's replacement on the Supreme Court about a year and a half ago or so, then you are probably vaguely familiar with the rough outlines of this essay. I mean, you know, we, we can kind of think back to when Amy Coney Barrett, mother of seven, including multiple adopted Haitian children when she was nominated there, we all heard that she was kind of a handmaid's tale kind of situation, that she was going to impose, you know, what uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein famously said was uh, that the dogma lives loudly within you. You know, we kind of heard all this kind of fear-mongering, this scare-mongering about this very, very scary religious Catholic justice on the Supreme Court. The essay is kind of sort of a lot of that, but it also kind of goes a little deeper into the history of the conservative legal movement. And for those of you who don't know my background that much, that kind of is kind of the wing of the right that I come from. I do kind of come up through the ranks, through kind of the legal side of the movement. Uh, to this day, I'm quite literally a card-carrying member of the, the Federal Society, which is kind of the main right-of-center legal organization, give all sorts of law school talks and uh, write essays on these subjects and all this stuff. So this is kind of my bread and butter for all intents and purposes here. The reason why this topic is percolating, why it's picking up so much steam here, of course, is because... There is a, well, there are there are a number of important cases on the Supreme Court docket this term, and obviously the court tends to save its highest profile cases for the end of the term, so we'll get some of those rulings in May and really more so than that, June. But the biggest topic from, certainly from kind of a cultural, civilizational perspective that is on the Supreme Court docket this term is, of course, the preeminent culture war issue of, of all, which, of course, is abortion and the right to life. And the case that is before the court this term, which is kind of the pretext, it's kind of operating in the background of this New Yorker long-form essay about Amy Coney Barrett, the case is called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. It's a case out of the, out of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which covers Texas, Mississippi, and Louisiana. It's actually the court, um, you know, speaking of my background, it's actually the court that I clerked on. I clerked for a judge there, clerked for a judge actually who was on the panel that heard this very case, as, as the case may be. So the Supreme Court heard oral argument in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization back on December 1st. The issue before the court in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization is, quote, 
whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. For those of you who kind of follow this issue closely, you've probably heard the term of quote-unquote viability before. Viability, at least as the court and as commentators use the term, refers to basically whether or not an unborn child is capable of surviving by itself outside of the womb. Uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist here. It doesn't necessarily take kind of a, you know, Thomas Aquinas-esque moral theorist. It doesn't take any one of that level of intellect or sophistication to realize that this is a fundamentally arbitrary line to begin with, right? The basic state of the biological science, of the medical science, of the embryology is such that the quote-unquote line of quote-unquote viability is pushed back almost every year. I think we roughly estimate now it's somewhere between 20 to 22 weeks. 22 weeks is the number I've seen kind of thrown about there. But we, we've obviously seen some unborn children that are, that are capable of surviving uh, much earlier than that. So the legal kind of framework here operating in this case, and then we're going to get back to the New Yorker article and talk about what's actually going on here. The legal framework, there's really kind of a couple of cases that are that are worth noting. The, the, the obvious case, the one that everyone knows, of course, is Roe versus Wade, which is a 1973 case where the court for the first time says that you have a quote-unquote constitutional right to a, uh, abort your unborn child in the first trimester. There can effectively be no regulations whatsoever. Uh, the companion case to Roe versus Wade that was decided the same day, a case called Doe, not Roe, effectively puts in such wide-ranging health exceptions that it effectively kind of allows abortion right up until really kind of birth if you kind of plead a sincere mental health objection. This is ultimately modified 19 years later in the 1992 case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. In the Casey case, they kind of throw out Rose trimester framework and they put in this viability line. This is where the viability thing comes from, is from the Planned Parenthood versus Casey case. So to take us back to Dobbs, the current case before the court here, what happened is Mississippi passed a 15-week ban, a very straightforward 15-week gestational ban on abortion. The question is whether this can withstand constitutional scrutiny. Well, the short and dirty answer is that it will likely fail, of course, under Roe and Casey, requiring the justices to overturn these horrific precedents in order to uphold Mississippi's statute. So that takes us back to the New Yorker article. This article, of course, is about Amy Coney Barrett. Amy, Amy Coney Barrett um, was the third of the three Trump nominees to the Supreme Court. Of course, the first was Neil Gorsuch. Neil Gorsuch's seat was effectively on the ballot the first time around. He was, his seat was on the ballot back in 2016. If we all recall, Justice Antonin Scalia passed away just about six years ago in February of 2016. Uh, majority, uh, it's Mitch McConnell, obviously Republican leader in the U.S. Senate, kind of uh, admirably. You know, I'm not always the first one to praise Ms. Mitch McConnell, but he admirably held the line and kept that seat open so that its vacancy was on the ballot that fall. And um, the, the result of that, of course, is Neil Gorsuch. And then obviously we all remember Brett Kavanaugh, the, the highly, highly contested, to put a mildly second nominee to replace the retiring Anthony Kennedy and Barrett was the third. But let's go back to... Mitch McConnell's excellent, admirably executed gambit to hold open Scalia's seat, um, the seat that was ultimately filled by Justice Gorsuch. There was a really kind of telling exchange during the 2016 election um, from former President Trump, actually, in an exchange with Chris Wallace, formerly of Fox News. Let's let's roll the tape on that. I am pro-life and I will be appointing pro-life judges. I would think that that will go back to the individual states. 
But I'm asking you specifically, would you if like to... If they overturned it, it'll go back to the states. But what I'm asking you, sir, is do you want to see the court overturn? You just said you want to see the court overturn Roe Well, if we put another two or perhaps three justices on, that's really what's going to be... Ha that will happen. And that'll happen automatically, in my opinion, because I am putting pro-life justices on the court. I will say this, it will go back to the states and the states will then make a determination. So eerily prescient in retrospect, first of all, right? I mean, the fact that he knew that apparently at that time that he would, that he would have the opportunity to make multiple uh, Supreme Court nominations, three obviously in a four-year term is a lot to put it mildly there. The, the, the upshot here is that if the court actually gathers five votes to overturn Roe and Casey, that President Trump will likely be remembered as the greatest hero in the modern history of the American pro-life movement, which is pretty crazy if you think about it, okay? The guy who, you know, hung covers of Playboy magazine of him on the cover in his gilded office and the penthouse of Trump Tower, um, you know, philanderer, adulterer. I mean, I don't need to kind of go off, obviously. We've all seen the Billy Bush tape and all that stuff. I mean, this is, you know, Donald Trump is not actually... I don't think he's anyone's kind of paragon of kind of deeply kind of Christian, social, conservative, moral virtue, to put it mildly here. But the reality is, as far as kind of on a results level, if his three nominees are all in the majority to overturn this, he's going to be remembered, really, guys, as the greatest pro-life hero in modern American history. I do not think that is I do not think that that is an exaggeration. People will remember that when it comes time for the 2024 Republican presidential primary. And I say that, by the way, as someone who all else equal would actually prefer my governor here, Ron DeSantis, as the next president instead of President Trump. But that that just seems to me so clear as to be indubitable. But stay with us. We'll take a quick break. And on the other side, Buck Sexton. Welcome back. So we're thrilled today to bring on my good friend, Buck Sexton. So Buck is the co-host of the nationally syndicated Clay Travis and Buck Sexton show, the official replacement for the late, great Rush Limbaugh. So Buck, so happy to have you on here. So kind of want to get started with your background, which I think is something that separates you. You know, you kind of stand out from the pack a little bit in this department. So you studied at Amherst College under our mutual friends, uh, the great legal political theorist, Hadley Arkes. You worked in the CIA, for goodness sake. So you're not you're not kind of your normal kind of shock jock radio host. So let's kind of start with the former. You come from very kind of elite credentialed, smart, for lack of better word, circles. Let's kind of start with like the higher level question here. What is conservatism? Like when someone says that he or she is a conservative, what does that actually mean? That's a great question, especially these days, because it feels like there's been such an enormous shift, certainly in the movement of conservatism in America towards something that is more, um, I would I would argue, both populist and focused on wielding the authority of the state toward good ends instead of a more libertarian, <clears throat> uh, you could say maybe laissez-faire conservatism. <clears throat> uh, for me, it's the, the, the primary basis of it is um, the application of consistent principle and the usage of history and human experience as a tool of, or as a framework for wisdom. So you have to have consistent principles. You have to look at what has happened before, what has worked before, and uh, apply that to the human challenges of today. That's my version of it. I don't I, you know. I mean, obviously we can sit around and talk about uh, to conserve, <laughs> right? And, standing athwart history yelling stop and all of that but to me it's yeah it's essentially principles and understanding human nature and human history and trying to 
come up with the best decisions based upon that. For sure. Look, I mean, that's about as good as, as I could do, too, honestly. I mean, it is kind of this continually tense and overlapping concepts of principle and prudence and how we can reapply timeless principles in a prudential fashion here. So what so what happened in 2016? You know, I mean, Trump obviously was not exactly kind of your classical National Review reading Heritage Foundation fellow kind of guy. So what the, what what did he pick up on that some of the conservative movement for the past 40, 50 years before that just hadn't quite grasped, do you think? Well, there are a number of issues that I think had become I mean, that, this is this is really the topic of a I would argue like a three hour podcast. Right. But I'll try to do the look at the quick and the quick and dirty on it. I mean, there were a number of issues that I think the Republican Party um, had strayed either, you could say, from conservative principles or maybe just strayed from what the base uh, wanted. <laughs> and Trump picked up on that. I mean, the biggest one right out of the gate was immigration. Uh, if you looked back from, say, 2016 to the year 2000, there had there had been this steady drift on immigration on the on the right, illegal immigration on the border specifically toward a, a more Cato Institute friendly uh, libertarian style. Well, the more the merrier. And what difference does it make? And we should have amnesty. I mean, there was even the was it the gang of eight bill with Marco Rubio yep. back in the Obama era. And what stopped that was people said, hold on a second, you're, you're going to actually give amnesty again. That's really what's going to happen here. And there was an outcry from the base. So the immigration issue is big. And it's an issue that ties together a few other things, too, because the American people are consistently and and really uh, relentlessly lied to by the Democrat corporate media, uh, lied to them uh, about what's really going on with illegal immigration. I mean, the the number I've spent a fair amount of time at the border um, with Border Patrol, doing ride along, speaking to various members of it. I've been down to uh, San Diego, Tijuana, uh, El Paso, uh, been down in McAllen, Texas. So I've spent time along the border. And when you ask what they think of the official census figure of close to 12 million now illegal immigrants in the country, I mean, they laugh. They're like, how is that? You really think that we're you've got 500,000 visa overstays a year. That's not even including the border. You had almost 1.7 million apprehensions at the border last year alone. Uh, that's one year. It's been almost 11 million or so illegals, they say, in the country for roughly the last 15 years. This is absurd. Uh, so the numbers, uh, a lot of people have huge questions. I mean, and, and again, that's, those are members of Border Patrol, senior, senior officials within border and uh, customs enforcement. Um, so that's, that's one. Ad. And Trump just came out and said that stuff. And, and that all of a sudden was like, whoa, uh, this guy's actually trying to shoot straight with us on issues. Cause that really does matter to people. I mean, to the national level journalist, uh, you know, it's all about, uh, you know, America as a nation of immigrants and, you know, diversity inclusion and all this, uh, all this, this mantra, but to a guy of any race, by the way, who is working as uh, let's say a general contractor in you know Arizona, uh, <clears throat> Professor I believe it's Professor um, uh, Borjas, uh, but I might actually be mixing him up with another at Harvard University has done the best work that I've seen on this, where he says, yeah, it doesn't lower wages all across the country all at once, but large influxes of illegal immigration, one place at a time one state at a time does actually have a real impact on wages. Obviously, it's called supply and demand. So there are serious issues there. And then just the, the biggest thing I think of all um, was 
Trump was willing not to try to play along with the media's game and play nice with them. But when he saw the opportunity, which he saw a lot, uh, he would throw a punch at them. And that was just invigorating for people who watched. I mean, George Bush was ruthlessly ridiculed and mocked for eight years. And it felt like never once did he just say, you know, you guys are a bunch of jackasses. I don't know if we're allowed to curse in this podcast or use a different word, but Trump all of a sudden comes along and he's like the guy in a bar fight who doesn't just walk away and maybe say something as he's being pushed out the door, but actually punches the bully back. And I think that that was a visceral thing for the conservative base. It was a powerful thing. And, and, you know, there's more things about how he turned the media apparatus against itself in some ways. People forget that fake news was what they were trying to say initially to undermine Trump, right? It was that Trump supporters believed the fake news from right. Russia on Facebook. And he turned it around jujitsu style and uh, and used it in their face. So those are, I mean, that's, that's what I see about how Trump changed the game uh, in some ways. Um, I wish he had been more disciplined. I wish he'd had better advisors, better personnel. Yeah. Uh, Cause I think that was his, I mean, his, the personnel decisions he made were, I think he even admits this now. I and mean, he's pretty much his, some of his personnel decisions were pretty inexcusably bad I mean, just horrifically bad. Um, I think if there's another time, and I think there probably will be, that's the area we could see the most, um, the biggest improvement. Trump's focus. I don't know. He's, you know, once the bear is loose, he kind of does what he does. <laughs> No, look, you're totally right. I mean, like basically every conversation that I have with any person vaguely right of center who's looking back on the Trump presidency, they say this, they say the exact same thing, that personnel was the Achilles heel time and time again, you know, failure to control the bureaucracy. But forget about the bureaucracy, even kind of like the top level secretary and undersecretary, deputy secretary, whatever level appointments were just consistently not in line with this vision. So I, I hear that over and over and over again here. So but totally agree with you. I mean, not just immigration. I mean, kind of just more in general. I mean, he was really just trying. He, he was willing to take a sledgehammer to dogma in the name, I think, of pragmatism in the name of actually looking at the world as it is, not as kind of, you know, the conservatism kind of educational curricular crowd pretended that it would be, you know, like China's a great example too, right? I mean, like, you know, for years and years, I mean, it was George W. Bush, I think, who oversaw China's ascension to the World Trade Organization in the early 2000s here, you know, it was this notion that kind of, you know, economic liberalization will lead to political liberalization. And Trump was the first guy who said, like, no, like, this is not working. <laughs> not only is this not working, but it's resulting in manufacturing and our industrial base from the heartland being shipped overseas, torn asunder, opioid overdeaths. I mean, you know, he famously used the phrase American carnage over and over again in that RNC speech. Well, let's take it to a quick break. We're talking with Buck Sexton. This is The Josh Hammer Show brought to you by Newsweek. We will be right back. Welcome back. We're talking with Buck Sexton. Let's kind of stick with with China, actually, while we're on the topic here. So you've obviously been among, I, I would say, the most outspoken of all of us on the right as far as it comes to kind of COVID and Fauci and mass and COVID tyranny. But on, on the China question in particular here, I mean, we're recording this during the middle of the freaking like Xi Jinping Beijing Olympics, for God's sake. What do we do? I, I Like, what should we as the U.S. doing, you know, you're a CIA guy. I mean, like, what should we do when it comes to actually potentially bringing China to heel or possibly punishing them for the hell that they have brought to the world in the form of COVID? Just, I like to throw this out there. So, because uh, I never want anyone to have any confusion about my feelings on this. I mean, I am an anti-mask zealot. 
Um, one could call me an, an anti-Fauci fundamentalist. And I, I, <laughs> I like that. And I am not, I'm not dropping this stuff. Like I know that we're now supposed to say, oh, well, we made it through. And no, 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 no. They did horrible things, horrible things in this country with really no attendant benefit whatsoever. And and they they did so while sneering at those of us who are actually willing to ask questions. And so that I'm I'm going to be I may, and maybe this will be even annoying people on the right. But six months from now, I'm still going to be saying, you know, where are the hearings? Where are where is the accountability for the disastrous lockdowns, the moronic mask policies, mask up between bites, social distancing, uh, vaccine mandates for people for a vaccine that doesn't stop the spread? So I'm sorry. As, See, I mean, I'm clearly a zealot and a fundamentalist because you even bring it up and you want to talk about China. And I'm like, let's trash Fauci <laughs> first. Um, tra- tra- trashing Fauci is always welcome on this program, Buck, just to be clear. Yeah, I mean, I I, I hope people like I, I've actually pushed this before. I want them to know that I am the most I like to think of myself as the most anti-Fauci person from the earliest stages of the pandemic of anybody on the right. Because I just he went to my high school, by the way. Oh, I just wow. know the guy. I know the guy is, is a, just an, an utter uh, fraud and and the absolute worst. Anyway, uh, in terms of China, this is this is fascinating because it's one of those areas where anybody who pays attention, I think, in in the broad scheme of uh, U.S. history, U.S. foreign policy, would have to say, you could step back from it and view this as a massive teaching moment. You should step back from it, think of it as a massive teaching moment because China might be. I don't know if we can find a bigger, uh, more bipartisan and really universal um, policy blunder on the on the global scale of the last certainly the last twenty or thirty years. And what I mean by this is the whole China, uh, the whole China policy of the United States government stretching back to the nineteen eighties was: we're just going to give them all the benefits of the global order and U.S. trade, and uh, as they become, we know it's a, a totalitarian state. It's, it's effectively, it's not really communist, as everybody knows. It's kind of a state-directed economy run by a mafia organization, which is the Chinese Communist Party. It's just a, uh, you know, a, a mafia-style uh, kleptocracy. And, you know, about a thousand people making all the real decisions and having no oversight beyond their own, um, you know, tribal, intertribal disputes for a country of over a billion people. But the Democrats and the Republicans got China wrong for a very long time. And I think it's in part because our elites on both sides of the aisle were getting rich. Um, We're getting rich from uh, owning stocks that were making a tremendous amount of money in China. We're getting uh, rich from the the effect of being able to offshore and then essentially you know offshore the jobs and import the, the goods and services at the cheapest possible price you know the the um, Apple and Amazoning of the whole world has become something that we've all now experienced and China is now a real player the second largest economy in the world it's going to become the first uh, economy in the world most likely in a pretty short period of time and you know they've got people in concentration camps. And you can't show up there with an iPhone or with a, an Android or whatever, and not expect that if you're a, an American for an American visitor, they're going to um, do anything other than you know put spy spyware on your device and just mess with you. I mean, it's crazy. So there was huge wrongness on China is the place that I start from on this. They got China as wrong as I mean, think about this. Let's make them really 
sure their politics are horrible. Let's make them really rich. Let's make the country as rich as we can so they can build a huge military and they can have tremendous influence, not just in the Asia Pacific region, but you know, globally, such that we have American companies and Hollywood movie studios bending the knee to them saying, we're sorry, we don't want to offend you. I mean, this, this is crazy what we've done. So you start with that. Now, what do we do about it? I mean, I think we have to look inward first. I mean, I, I think that uh, the elites in this country, um, I, I think that uh, patriotism for a lot of them is uh, something they sneer at. I think that they, they view themselves as part of a, part of a global order. Uh, essentially, if you're rich enough to go to Davos, you know, you're the kind of person who should be at Davos making the decisions for everybody else. Or, you know, pick your, there's lots of these things. They have them right at you know, fancy ski locations in Colorado. I've never been to one. I'm unfortunately not <laughs> part of the uh, Illuminati as much as I wish otherwise. Um, but, you know, they, there's, there's a lot of ways now for people to justify in their own minds um, the outsourcing, not just of our jobs, but also of any sense that there's obligation to this country we live in beyond just the bottom line, you know, what's legal and profitable is good has been the, the mantra of the ruling class in this country, uh, certainly for my whole adult lifetime. And, uh, that results in a lot of problems. <laughs> there's, there's actually more, there's more to it than that. And I think that, that, so I think that for us to, to confront China in a meaningful way, there needs to be a greater sense of what are we as Americans trying to create and do here for our country and how does that interact with our relationship with China on the world stage? I want to kind of switch gears and go back to what we were alluding to a little earlier in the conversation, um, though. We talked a little bit about your background in, in, in the CIA, Buck. One thing that I think the Trump administration years kind of showed, you know, I mean, the, the, the kids would kind of call it like a blackpilling moment. I mean, it kind of like exposed, I think, a lot of rot in the intelligence community for, for what it is. You know, the late, great Angelo Cotavilla of Claremont Institute in Boston University wrote about this for years and years and years. You know, he famously had this essay a couple of years ago, kind of like abolish, um, abolish FISA, reform the CIA. Talk us about, from your perspective, as someone who kind of came up through the ranks a little bit in these circles, what you saw as far as kind of Russiagate and the various scandals or mini scandals in the intelligence community during the Trump years and what you think we on the right should be pushing for going forward in that respect. Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, no one should be surprised that the same the same process that has clearly occurred in the university system, and I think people also have realized now, really across corporate America, the process of left wing dominance of the apparatus. That's a term that I try to popularize on the right as much as possible because I really do believe that it's the most apt way because it does it does have uh, it does evoke and I mean it to evoke the Soviet apparatus and the commissars and apparatchiks that used to dominate life behind the Iron Curtain. Um, we're not there yet, but a lot of these people and I think what we've seen in COVID um, raises a lot of Americans the prospect that we could be at something like that in the future. You know, people say, oh, we're not communists. And I say, well, is China communist? Not really, but it is, but it's not. And what are we in this country going to become if we allow, um, you know, Fauci lockdowns, mandatory vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. All, you know, and shutdowns of free speech by big tech. I mean, all the things we've seen. Uh, back to the, the, the intelligence community, though. So, 
you know, they took over the law schools, they took over the universities, they took over the corporate boardrooms with wokeness and diversity, inclusion, madness and all the rest of it. And people say, well, at least we have, you know, the military and the CIA. And I look at them and I say, <laughs> sorry, to t- sorry to be the one to explain this to you. I can't speak to the military side of it the same way because I was never military. Well, I spent a lot of time with military overseas in my capacity as a CIA, uh, you know, civilian uh, analyst. But the CIA side of it, I mean, how do you get a job at the CIA? You go to preferably an elite international relations school. You learn a second language. You do these things that would line you up for a job at, you know, um, you know, the Peace Corps or the UN or the CIA, right? I mean, you kind of look at who they're recruiting and who the, what the, the skill set, the basic skill set of who would go into the intelligence world. And you're saying, okay, well, if they're coming out of these left-wing indoctrination factories, uh, these universities that have programs, I mean, every international relations program that I've ever experienced or been through or been around at the university level, and I've had, I've dabbled here and there. I did some, I did some courses through Georgetown and et cetera, uh, you know, graduate courses in, in IR. And it's just all the same sort of, uh, globalist perspective on everything. Um, and, and it's, you know, the, the UN is great. Multilateralism is great. America is like messed up a lot and America is not so great. I mean, that's, that's a very right. water, you know, a very kind of baseline view of, of everything. And so they've seized, you know, they've seized these institutions and then they replicate these ideologies. So, yeah, I mean, what you're going to have are a lot of people who yep. uh, go into the intelligence community and are really ideological. I mean, I felt that the, the scorn that senior people in the intelligence community would show inside, you know, the, the walls of the intel community. And, and I mean, at, at high level meetings and stuff, I mean, in a Bush, they would say things about Bush that were just appalling. Uh, and he was the commander in chief and we're in the time of war. Not everybody. I mean, you know, of course, right. There's, there's going to be a lot of people that are patriots and doing their business and everything else, but there were certainly folks at high level. Um, I mean, I'll never forget when Obama won the election and a, a few very senior people from inside the intelligence community were just, you know, at a big meeting, we're just making jokes about, well, you know, unlike the last guy, this one's a reader, you know, ha ha ha. Oh my God. Wow. Um, yeah. Stuff like, I mean, stuff like that. It was just, it was just omnipresent. So the political bent, I mean, you know, you'll see you know, if, if you were to go around some of the big known Intel facilities, you know, in the D.C. area, you know, the, the, whether you're talking about you know, the NSA headquarters or CIA headquarters, you, know, you go around, you, you'll, you'll get a sense. There are plenty of Bernie Sanders voters, believe it or not, who, you know, plenty of cat ladies and Bernie Sanders voters in the uh, in the Intel community. No, that's, it's, that's just the truth. It's sobering stuff. I mean, like I remember, look, growing up, I grew up not far, you know, from, like you and from the, from the New York area originally. I mean, I, I remember doing sleepaway camp at West Point's campus, the military academy being woken up at 5 a.m. by cadets marching by. I used to I, I used to be such like a sappy patriot. I mean, I used to like look forward to the flyovers at the sporting events. I mean, I, I, I was one of those conservatives who helped come the military and the intelligence community in such, such high esteem, which is what makes it so painful when we've seen the stuff that we've seen over the past five years. Obviously, there was, you know, Mark Milley over the past summer with critical race theory and all that stuff. But your point, which is a good one, is that it is just this same woke ideology that spreads like the cancer it is through every institution in America. And logically speaking, there is no reason why the military and the IC would be any different than the media or the university or any other kind of major institution. So I guess 
You know, the question that it feels like we on the right face when we're up against this hegemonic, you know, ubiquitous, frankly, ideology that wants to subjugate us, ostracize us, is what the hell do we do? And, you know, there are multiple responses to that, obviously. It's kind of like an all-the-above strategy, right? I mean, I guess to an extent, we have to kind of create alternative forms of media, alternative credentialing institutions. Some of us can try to kind of, you know, make um, you know, make inroads from within pre-existing institutions. To an extent, obviously, I mean, I work for Newsweek, obviously, a historically kind of liberal brand. I mean, um, so we got to take advantage of those opportunities when they hire heterodox people like me. So do you have any thoughts on that as to, like, how we can possibly just try to I mean, I, 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 yeah, I, absolutely. I, I don't want to say survive. I, I, I like but, yeah. to think, yeah, no, you know, I like to think that, uh, you know, even if, even if you and I, Josh, as conservatives in the American media, if we are, you know, Leonidas and his 300, at least we're going down fighting. Again, <laughs> you know, we, we will, we will fight in the shade when their arrows blot out. The I sun. got your back um, in the foxhole, man. Exactly. I'll tell you this: the fact the, the fact that the that the commies in this country have overreached um, the way that they have, and, and I do find a lot of fascinating parallels between the absolutism, uh, and I mean to again borrow a, a pre-Soviet uh, term, the the maximalists, right? The the ultra ex, the ultra extremist revolutionaries that were operating in Russia in the early 1900s, uh, leading up to the revolution in 1917. Um, this this ideology of absolutism we've seen it before in other places and it's very alive and well on the left and the thing about it is they have shown us who they are in recent years in ways that i had i hadn't anticipated um whether it was through the uh, the just horrific and inhuman uh inhumane ambush of kavanaugh to stop him from being on the supreme court or the way they lied about russia collusion with trump uh, and now big tech for example openly being a censorship wing of the apparatus of the Democrat Party, they are, the good news is that, okay, we've kind of suffered a, a first strike in recent years. I mean, we, we see what they're trying to do. And I do think people are waking up. I, I think that they're forcing us. They used to sneer, you know, go build your own platforms. And we tried. And then they shut down Parler, et cetera. And, and they sneered and said, build your own internet. Well, now guess what? We're there's some stuff going on where conservatives are actually building real free speech online and, and, and an ecosystem that can't be shut down um, on the whims of, you know, low IQ, low testosterone news anchors at CNN. I mean, <laughs> this is this is for, for the for the men, for the men over there. Um, you know, this is the uh, the reality I think, that we all face. And so they're forcing us to fight back at some because otherwise it's all over. So that's. That's in a sense the good news, um, and and I think also just conservatism more generally to kind of bring this conversation full circle, you you got to win, and you actually have to if you really believe something is moral and and is necessary for the state and and dare I say promotes the common good, which of course is what all these fights I guess at some level are about. You, you got to be willing to actually do something about it. You know, ha having a think tank conversations. And, you know, showing up to, uh, you know, a, a cruise for your favorite right wing magazine once a year or something <laughs> that ain't going to do it. So we we have I think there's a there's a sense of not just mobilization, but a sense of uh, fight on the right that did not exist before. Um, and I think Trump was a part of it. Um, I think it now continues. I think the uh, overreach of big tech and the tyranny of the lockdowns have really woken up 
uh, this side of things. And that's that's all to the good. Will we win or not? I don't know, man. How many how many Persians are they throwing against us, Josh? That's the question. <laughs> well, whether we win or lose, we're going to go down fighting either way. So I'm happy to have you in this fight as a good friend, Buck. So thanks so much for joining this week. We really appreciate it. Thank you, man. And great stuff over at Newsweek. I appreciate uh, you joining me. And, you know, if anyone wants to, is listening to you. Obviously, you have a very, very uh, intellectual and and um, and astute audience. So they can come over to the Buck Sexton podcast sometime to check it out. Listen to, listen to Josh and Buck. You'll love it. Good times. Absolutely. Can't wait for that. So take care, man. Have a good weekend. You too. So lots to unpack from that conversation there. You know, I was kind of, you know, teasing Buck a little bit, but he obviously fully embraced it. Buck obviously has been among the people on the right and kind of the commentary at blue check chattering class, if you will, who really has been kind of pushing the envelope on the Fauci issue more and more and more aggressively here. And what's really interesting, if you kind of look back, and this is actually the the topic that I chose to write about for my column this past week, if you look back at what is happening in the current landscape, as far as COVID is concerned, you're actually starting to see even like leading Democrats, Democratic officials from New York to Connecticut to even freaking Gavin Newsom out in California, who are increasingly starting to shy away from the worst of the worst draconian restrictions that we saw as far as mask mandates, vaccine mandates, this obviously comes on the heels of the Supreme Court's enjoining uh, the Biden administration's OSHA vax mandate. By the way, the, I, I just have to say, while we're on that topic, the Biden speech that he gave on the OSHA vax mandate this past September, which I watched every minute of, was a far, far more imperious, heavy-handed, and I would frankly just say quasi-tyrannical speech than anything that Barack Obama himself ever said. Watching him give that address, genuinely raise the hair at the back of my neck. But thankfully, the Supreme Court enjoined that. And the point is, kind of in the aftermath of that, and, you know, look, it's it, I guess in their, like, very mild credit, it's true that kind of COVID caseloads are always a very questionable metric to begin with because it depends, obviously, on how widespread the testing is. But holding that aside, it's true that kind of Omicron caseloads recently have been declining. So I guess give them like a modicum of credit where it is due here. But the upshot is that even the Democrats now are starting to shy away from the mass mandates, Kathy Hockle in New York, New Jersey, all these blue states, they're, they're really starting to shy away from uh, imposing mass or, or vax cards everywhere and anywhere. The upshot of that the, is that the onus shifts on those of us who have been a little more clear-eyed on this issue for the past year, year and a half, almost, you know, for, in some cases, like Buck's case, basically almost two years now, that's how far into this freaking thing we are, the onus shifts to hold responsible those who did this to us. We're going to start to see here over the next month or two a deeply concerted gaslighting campaign. You know, the New York Times editorial board, Rachel Maddow, we heard her earlier, MSNBC, CNN, the whole works. We're going to start to see a very deliberate campaign to try to gaslight Americans into forgetting the horrors that they have seen over the past two years. We cannot forget that. We have to continue to hold them responsible here. Look, I have friends... I have a good, good friend out in Las Vegas, okay? But the last time I saw him, he had like a three-year-old son, maybe even three and a half. The son had not said a word yet. 
we are seeing real kind of developmental challenges in children, the children that we have forced to put a freaking face diaper in, these useless pieces of cloth over their faces, second, third graders. Second and third graders learn to, co to communicate with one another. Guys, my mom's a freaking third grade teacher here. I know what I'm talking about in this. They learn to communicate with each other by watching each other's kind of, or, you know, how their mouths move, like reacting to kind of all the muscles in the face in real time. These are basic kind of child developmental things. We are not going to know the true effects of the hell, the hell that CDC, Fauci, Burks, Walensky, kind of the whole public health apparatus and the various kind of tin pot dictators in the various blue states, we are not going to know the true results of the hell that they have wrought for years, perhaps decades. And if you think that you can possibly start to forget about that now, no, you can't. Hold them responsible, hold their feet to the fire and do not forget what they have done to us when you go to cast your ballot boxes this fall. That is what I would plead to you, but this has been another episode of The Josh Hammer Show. Thanks for listening.